I think what's like craziest about it is that now that I am officially fully immersed into being a Home Depot guy. Correct. Which, to be clear on what that is, right? Because that's a very specific type mm-hmm. of person. That's someone who basically spends their weekends mindlessly drifting through Home Depot, and they just kind of end up there, right? Like, it's mm. not something that you plan. It's not something that you really got on the schedule. You just, like, snap into consciousness, and you're, like, in the power tool aisle, you know? <laughs> see, I'm a Menards and, girl. Oh, see, that's that's different. That's a whole different thing, I feel like. Mm. But the Home Depot guy, you know, he's he kind of does a lap, bef- you know, around the store before really getting down to whatever thing he may or may not even yep. need. Um, but so the purpose this time was buying dirt. Mm. I'm buying dirt because I am digging up a yard right now. The whole thing. The whole <laughs> yeah, the goddamn whole, thing. I spent the whole weekend digging up a yard, yeah. <sighs> um, and what I found in this process is that I now have brands on, of uh, lawn care stuff sure. that I care about. Everybody has brand know? loyalty. Right. Well, I really, I feel like I actually don't all that much. But now that I think about it, I'm like obsessed with the one kind of gas station coffee and like it, it does, it does seem like maybe the I one kind of notebook, the one kind oh, of pen. This is this has become cruel. The and one kind of pants. Man. The one kind of we're burrito. Really, we're, <laughs> we are really having. But anyway, the point. <laughs> we're cutting all of this. Um, the point of that is to say that I'm a Scott's turf builder guy now, <laughs> <laughs> and if Scott's turf builder. Would like to come on the show as like, you know, if I could do like a live read for them and talk about how their soil is like so nutrient rich. Yeah. And they like in exchange gave me some bags of the aforementioned soil. You would you would um, need it. Oh, I would do it because. Question, Eric. What have you grown in your Scots turf builder soil? Oh, nothing yet. Come on. <laughs> we're, we're well far away from planting anything. All I'm doing is just laying dirt down. It's very, it's very solipsistic right now. It's just. Spreading the dirt around in a fanciful manner mm, with one um, of your hard rakes. Oh yeah, you've got a rake. Mm. Um, Do you have? You have to have the two rakes. You have to have the leaf rake and then the hard rake. I know, because you got to get the rocks out. Yeah. What are you gonna do? Not right? have rocks. Yeah. So this is this is my new existence. So is the yard. We went to the farmers market uh, on Saturday to buy some um, annuals. Because mm-hmm. we got all the perennials planted. Like, we got mm-hmm. the hostas. You know, there were a couple that came with our yard, etc. We, too, spent a really long time uh, digging out our yard. This is why people listen to the show, I'm sure. Yes. It's just, like, the yard takes. Yeah. So, apparently, do you know the difference between perennials and annuals other than the fact that, like, one comes every year and one you have to buy every year? Do you, do you think that I know the difference between those well, two? Well, I'm going to tell you because <laughs> yeah, I my mind was blown. Yeah. So, apparently... Because, like, I've always thought, like, okay, I'm a lazy human being. Mm-hmm. Um, if I am going to have a garden, I'm just going to have perennials because they yeah. just come up every year and yeah. you weed and you water them-ish. And then yeah. they're, like, they're there and yay. Um, and I was always, like, P- why were people buying annuals? That's so dumb. Um, and then my mother-in-law told me that perennials, even though they are easy to have... They only bloom for a short amount of time, and annuals give you color all summer long. Hmm. So what we did is now, armed with that information, went to the farmer's market and had to choose to curate our annuals to be sprinkled among the perennials. Right, yeah. Um, Absolutely. And, yeah, you got to so, sprinkle, folks. Yep, so we've got this really cool gradient in our in our yard now. It goes from, like, whites and yellows to like oranges and reds to like purples to Mm -hmm. blues Mm -hmm. so that's real nice um but one thing that was there is we came across a lot of like other decorative foliage Mm. and so our front yard i was really you know adamant about wanting to put some native grasses in there because you know it's minnesota and and lawn no offense to you and to scott Mm -hmm. uh but you know i'd love to have turf builder yeah. Uh, nutrient rich uh. <laughs> soil. Uh, but I wanted some native grasses to kind of like, you know, break it up a little bit um, and to frame the house, you know. Uh, but so my my lovely fiance goes and he and he goes off one night because he's so into the idea of native grasses. This was a couple weeks ago and goes and buys literally $80 worth of native grass. Mm-hmm. Comes home and I am not pleased. <laughs> 
right. because it's $80 worth of grass. Right. Um, yeah. But you know what? It's his thing, and it was my idea in the first place, so great, this is going to happen. Um, but then we're out this weekend, and we find better grasses. Like, there's this one where it's, like, there's the normal grass, but then there's, like, these little shoots that come up with little, like, pom-poms of grass. Yeah. They're, like, little pom-poms. That's they're, exciting. Like, they're yeah. very exciting. And mm-hmm. so we both stood there, and we just, like, stared at this beautiful grass, this majestic grass that is also, by the way, cheaper than the grass that we purchased. And then we felt very bad about our decisions. So I'm yeah. glad that you have comfort in your brands mm-hmm. and in your actions with your garden because I feel like I have made a great mistake. Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane. With me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, everyone. Today is May 21st. Um, we've got a fun episode for you today, I think. Um, before we get into the various things we're going to be talking about, we're going to be talking about the Romantic Times closing. We're going to be talking about a citation thing that always gets me excited. As citation someone who was in, wars. Yeah, who was in academic publishing uh, for a while, that always gets me going. Um, but before any of those such things, how about the basic rundown? Yeah, so we still have all three episodes, all three special episodes to get to you this month. They are coming. They will be here before the end of the month. Um, don't worry. The first one will be here this week. <laughs> one thing I would say that you and I have done a great job of tactically yes. is we've stopped promising dates. when the dates are for the special episodes. Yeah. They all, they all show up. They, they definitely all, all show up. Yeah. And, you know, it's important that we record them yeah. when, you know, when we have the, the bandwidth for them, because mm. that's where the true yeah. uh, quality hashtag right. content comes in. Right. So they're coming. If you're worried that you missed something. Never or worry. Never worry. We're just late-ish, but we're not, we're not technically late, late we're until not late. next we week. We didn't promise a date. Yeah. Yep. So there we go. Anyway, um, should we that's, quit berating our listeners? We should keep get into quit. The show? Well, no, we should quit berating ourselves. Yeah. Um, yes. So let's get into the show. Um, so the thing I want to start with today comes to us um, from a Daily Beast article um, that uh, came out this morning, and it concerns a book by um, the author's name is Angela Nagel. You've perhaps heard of this book. It's called Kill All Normies. I confess I had not heard you of hadn't. this book. Yeah, no, well, I think we're in slightly different corners of the internet because this was one that um, really takes all of my interests and collides it, which is, you know, just like weird, overly online leftist Twitter and um, academic publishing arguments, which is like the two things I like most. And what we have <laughs> here today is it came to the fore that this book, which is about, it's about internet culture, it's about... Um, Basically, the central argument of the book seems to be that, um, I don't know, that the behavior of liberals online is what has driven all of these, um, you know, horrible corners of the internet that are far right and terrible and Nazi-ish and all these things to kind of, you know, it's sort of a response to that, right? Like, it's sort of a book that blames the left for the behavior of the online right, right? And obviously that we're not going to get into what we think of that argument, we don't think very much of it. Zero. Um, we think zero. But anyway, this was a book that was kind of, it kind of had some steam for a while, right? Like this was one that people wanted to discuss. It was one that, um, you know, really kind of captured the imagination. Nagel really had kind of a, you know, kind of a high point a few months ago, you know, in terms of like publicity coverage and everything. But we have learned today um, that there seem to be some citation issues in the book. <laughs> Talk to me about um, what that means, Yeah, Eric. well, so it's one of those things, and this happens at nonfiction publishers from time to time, and I think that I have actually even told a story on this show about how it happened once to me. And what basically what the upshot here is we've got an author that um, didn't really cite anything throughout the book, and that's kind of red flag number one, right? It's like there just simply weren't wasn't the level of just sources listed and footnotes or end, you know any of the things that traditionally get associated with like 
rigorous up, thought. Upper market, well, rigorous thought, but even more specifically, like upper market nonfiction publishing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, especially like the academic trade stuff you might find at like a Basic Books or an Oxford University Press or a Norton or someone like that, right? Um, and this book felt somewhat devoid of that. And this was not something, as we're going to see, that particularly bothered um, the publisher of Zero Books. But um, what we've found out is that sometimes when you ignore that and you don't do a thorough enough job of checking to see where, you know, things like definitions or things like, um, you know, how where certain arguments come from or who said what throughout history as you're trying to make your point, that sometimes the stuff just gets pulled from Wikipedia. <laughs> which isn't <laughs> which, always correct. Which is, well, forget whether or not it's correct or not. It's simply not a... It's not an acceptable source, yeah. you know? Like, Wikipedia is a tool that is meant to lead you to other sources, right? Like, it's one that is itself cited and contains citations that you're supposed to then go use if you're trying to get fast information that you can actually put in a paper, you know? like If even Wikipedia uses sources and then your book doesn't... Well, that's the... That's <laughs> the I mean, that's yeah. the beauty of the, of the resource, right? Is, like, it is just fast information if you just need something, but it's not a... In and of itself... I mean, it's a open access, you know, encyclopedia, like, and I can go in there right now and, you know, write things in Wikipedia without any expertise on anything. But that being said, um, basically what we found here is that large, many, you know, portions of, of arguments have kind of an eerie similarity to Wikipedia entries for certain things, you know. And so we're sort of at this point where, and, you know, the piece kind of argues back and forth on it, like, is it plagiarism? Is it not? And I don't know if it's express plagiarism, but it sure does seem to be copped from a source that, one, isn't really that very, you know, it's not really an acceptable source under any standard. And it's not even in her words, you know, like even if it was a source, mm-hmm. like you have to cite it, you know. Like, and so the, the big point here is our citation issues. But what makes the issue interesting to me is less that this happened um, because this kind of thing comes up from time to time and more the publisher response to it because I think it raises something interesting. And so I'm looking um, and I'm going to read just this one little paragraph here um, where the publisher, um, we kind of get the quote in response to um you know, they're like they this has been brought to them. The Daily Beast brought these, you know, findings to them, and this is how they responded. In a statement provided to the Daily Beast, Douglas Lane, the publisher of Kill All Normies, said, We do not require or even encourage that our authors cite sources and abide by the standards of academic publishing, adding that concerns about proper citation don't exist at zero books. However, we are concerned about plagiarism and copyright infringement. And then um, he goes on to say what he does not believe that what we have here is plagiarism. We can talk about that in a second. But so maybe there's, you know, the line in there that kind of rankles me, right, is this idea that the only people who should be concerned about proper citation and responsible sourcing in nonfiction publishing are, quote, academic publishers, right? And what he's saying there is, I mean, between the lines is that the only people who care about um, where the information comes from are readers with, you know, specialized backgrounds in academics, right? Mm -hmm. Like, he's drawing a line. He's like, over here is academic publishing, and that is not meant for trade readers. It's something that is um, designed for, you know, in a field, for classroom use, for um, things other than entertaining you in sort of a popular journalism kind of way, Right. Right. And he's kind of drawing that wedge and saying, well, this book isn't that, and therefore um, neither do we have to be. And like this line here, I mean, it's just so bold to say, concerns about proper citation don't exist at zero books. Man. Yeah. Okay. So (laughs) as somebody who has worked uh, in popular nonfiction and has worked at an academic press. Yeah. Yeah. the implication here seems to be that the difference between academic publishing and and uh, trade publishing is is that it, it's all about like academic rigor, right? Well, he's making he seems he is to saying make it, that right. It's rigor and citation level. What yeah. do you think that the difference is? Well, I think that that is sort of how it gets you know batted around in 
um, you know, in editorial meetings often at trade houses. And I've heard mm-hmm. this before. And I've, I think, you know, when we talked about University of Kentucky Press and we kind of got into those things, you know, months ago, like there is a problem with popular presses kind of viewing, taking the line of thought you just said, which is that they sort of view the difference not in um, as in one of rigor, right? Like we don't have to be as thorough in our argument as one would have to be in an academic press. And I am here to say, and I think that most people, anyone who wants to publish books responsibly should be on the side of saying that that is not what the difference of academic and trade publishing is. And that the answer really is audience, right? Yeah. Like just because if I'm talking to um, other, if I'm like a, you know, a historian and I'm talking to other historians, yes, it's obviously critically important for me to cite my sources and be you know, extra kind of meticulous in my citing of everything and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, but I'm also given the license to write in as sophisticated a means as I want. I don't have to be reader friendly, right? Because I'm talking to other people who understand the content on the level that I do. Right. Right. So that's academic publishing to some degree. But what trade publishing is, at least in terms of what's the difference between these two things are, it's not... Well, now we can throw out that entire process out the window and say whatever <laughs> we want. It's you do the same level of citation and research and things and then take the added step of making the content accessible. Right. Like it's actually um, contrary to what, you know, um, Mr. Lane here seems to be saying. I actually view uh, trade publishing as a more rigorous task in a lot of ways simply because it has an added layer of consideration for audience, but with that, without having to sacrifice any of the, um, the need for, you know, proper research and things like that. And so, like, this idea that, um, you know, proper citation concerns don't exist at their press or, like, you know, this kind of false thing where he draws this wedge between, you know, what they're doing and the standards of um, academic publishing. You know, I find it, um, I mean, I find it incorrect, and I think the response is kind of, is kind of silly. And what also kind of got me going about it a little bit is because I just kind of tried to put myself in the mind of like, so you go, you're going to work, right? Like you work at zero books, you get up, you're in there and boom, this happens. And suddenly it's crisis day, right? (laughs) Like you're having, suddenly you are having a bad day at work. And, um, the answer here, you go into kind of like crisis management mode. And I just can't imagine that the way to handle this wouldn't be to say something that isolates the incident as a one-time thing. Like what they should have said somewhere in here is um, this is something that is an aberration to the way we publish. It's something that doesn't meet our standards. We're looking into, you know, there's lots and lots of ways where they can issue an honest mea culpa while also saying this isn't how things are always done yeah. here at the Zero rest Books. of our list isn't garbage exactly and truthfully i don't think the rest of their list is i like zero books you know what i mean like it's um but that's not what he did you know what he said is actually we don't have this concern for anything on our list which i feel like is the exact wrong way to go with this because it basically says um not only did we not care about it for this book we don't care about it for any of our books. You know, like, yeah. how am I supposed to, I don't know. It just makes it. Um, As a reader, how are you supposed to, like. So, not be so, insulted. Right. right. And the, and the <laughs> yeah. idea is, is that um, all, I, I, I think kind of the, the nuance that, you know, very charitably an interpretation of, of this is that Douglas Lane is, you know, talking about how a, a lot of their their books, a lot of it is more thought experiments and opinions, mm-hmm. which I think, you know, a lot of this particular book is. Yeah. However, if you have an opinion and you want it to be persuasive, you need to actually have it based on observations or facts or, extrapola- or extrapolation from some sort of research, right? And like exactly. it's at least well so well, here's the thing about that is you don't actually have to do that. Well, you can get online and say whatever you want. Yeah, you can write but, whatever you want. But, but there's a difference between yeah. like having, you know, your Alex Jones hot take opinion that happens in 30 seconds versus right. an 80,000 word book yeah. where somebody needs to actually get through it. Like the whole point of a book is that you build 
all of your arguments on top of one another and you kind of end up with a, a, a cohesive point. No, and I think that I think that that's true. I will also say that there are plenty of books that are 80,000 words long that are filled with crap. But yeah. the thing that, but the, the difference to me contextually and why I find it particularly unacceptable here is that zero books kind of fits when I think about them. They fit within this sort of tradition of like small lefty, not academic, but progressive and kind of a, um, you know, they publish things that um, have an intellectual tilt to them. You know, this is not a, you know, this is a press that um, prides itself on sharp writing. You and know what I mean? forward thinking. Exactly. And like, so I think of others in that genre and you think, or other um, publishers in that category, and you come up with um, a lot of books that, or a lot of presses that sort of more and more are blurring that line between academic press and specifically political press. So we've got, you know, places like Haymarket Books, which is a small press that does all kinds of, um, you know, little progressive titles. And, you know, Verso Books is obviously a big one. Um, Or, you know, I had this conversation with an editor at an academic house the other day. And one thing that he said, you know, as he was kind of building out his small, ostensibly academic history list is he was like, you know, we've been having conversations internally where it's like, why can't we be something that comps to one of these sort of more tradey progressive presses you know like w- there's no reason that we can't start to kind of bridge over into those categories as well and start to kind of compete in those areas and the point of that is to say that this guy wants to draw a wedge between academic publishing and like small specifically political publishing and pr- uh, progressive media in a way that i think is um you know i'd kind of want to push him on it a little bit you know because i think that um with just the vast amount of crap that's out there to read. And I don't, and to be clear, I'm not sitting here saying that this book falls into that category, but um, I just think that there's a particular responsibility if you're going to be a progressive political publisher to actually pay attention to the academic traditions from which the arguments you're making stem up. You know what I mean? Like if you think about who your best authors are in these categories, a lot of the times it's academics. It's people who are trained in this sort of research, you know? And if you're working with someone who's a journalist and not an academic, then it's even more important to make sure that the, you know, academic work that they end up pulling from, and they should be pulling from some, um, that they're doing it responsibly, you know? And I just... I think it's that, disappointing all around. Well, it's disappointing <laughs> all around, but it's also I think it highlights a marriage between um, two types of you know publishing that um, people sometimes treat as separate, but really aren't. Like an academic press is not like an island way out in the middle of the sea. Like there's <laughs> gradations to this stuff. You know what I mean? Like you know, like if you take like someone like Norton. You know, they are, they're not an academic press by any means, but they do stuff. Or that, OUP. Or, yeah, exactly. Or any of these places that sort of blend um, academic rigor with varying degrees of um, trade accessibility. And I think that the line, it's a spectrum. It's not a hard and fast category either way. And because of that, you do have to bring the same rigor across all of it. And that has gone missing here, so... I'm going to change tack a little bit <laughs> from uh, from academic yeah. to romance. The other ac- the other kind of academic. Yeah, publishing. the other kinds yeah. of rigor. Yeah. Rimshot. Mm. Um, mm. <laughs> <laughs> Not okay. safe. There, that'll be the bit that someone will have playing when their loud. boss walks yeah, in. That's good. We, I think we promised we, we were going to start doing warnings for that, but we're, we're not doing that. We no, we can't. We're here to get your boss mad. Yeah. Um, or so. titillated. Or titillated folks. Or both. Yeah. It's going to be a real confusing mess. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Eric. So uh, one thing happened this week. Uh Um, A lot of people in romance publishing uh, went to Reno, Nevada Uh uh, to go to the Romantic Times Conference. So this... For some reason, I picture yeah. all of romance publishing always hanging out in Reno, Nevada. You know, this, it feels this like the right place. <laughs> this conference moved around a lot, yeah. but when I heard that it was going to be in Reno, I was like, "Yep, just feels right." Yep, yeah. it feels right. It feels good. The Romantic Times, also called RT, um, is a lot of things, right? It's a very large brand, so it is a romance magazine. It's been around since 1981. Um, it's also, you know, they are also have branded book reviews on their website. They have um, 
a convention, which is the big thing that happened in Reno, right? Yeah. So in Reno, at the opening, um, at the opening remarks, Catherine Falk, who founded RT, announced that they are closing. Like it's not just that this is going to be the last convention. Yeah. This is going to, you know, the magazine's going to close, the reviews are going to close, everything is going to close. It felt kind of sudden. Very sudden. Yeah. Especially, you know, just, you know, there's. Publishing always moves real slow until something ends, and then it's like... Until something goes wrong, and then it's just like the spiral, yeah. Yeah, it's always... Yeah, yeah. it's very strange, but it was very sudden, and a lot of people were very shocked. Um, and I kind of... I don't want to necessarily speculate as to why, because sure. there's not a lot of information. Like, yeah. the line given is that Catherine Falk is retiring. We can take that on right? as we learn more. Yeah, but so she's... The idea is that she's retiring, and so the entire organization is shutting down. Uh, what I instead want to talk about really is the vacuum, right? Um, what is going to happen as this is as this is closing? Mm-hmm. Um, so the first thing I know one of one of my romance authors emailed me saying, "What is happening?" And the idea is is that you know like romance is a very tight community. Um, I I won't say insular because pr- people can join it all the time, but I will say that it's very tight and it's because in a lot of other spaces in publishing, as we've talked about many times on this podcast before, um, romance is considered not real or not serious or not good yeah. or, you know, whatever other good modifiers. Even as it just like crushes all the sales. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It just crushes it. Right. Just yeah. absolutely crushes right. it. Um, so, you know, it's yeah. So there's this idea that it's it's not that it's that it's that it's not good that it's just this weird little niche right yeah um that has a tendency to like bring an ecosystem together together chip on the shoulder for sure um so what that is meant is that there are a lot of organizations and a lot of events that are focused specifically around romance books romance books. In a way that you don't necessarily see in other genres. Yeah, in yeah. a way that you don't see other places. So like Romantic Times is a key example of that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been almost 40 years of of exactly that. You know, a magazine just for romance. Right. Um, a you know, a convention that's just for romance. And to be clear, like we've talked about RWA before, which is the Romance Writers of America and their conference. Um, RT is different in that it is a lot more reader focused, whereas like RWA is very much like a, in a lot of ways, it's like a professional conference. Mm -hmm. Um, So for example, RT has a male beauty pageant. They have Mm. cover models walking around on the floor. Um, there's lots of signings. That's a huge part of the, the event, you know? Um, and so it's, it's really more of a celebration for readers. Of course, people go for craft, but it very much is for that, that, uh, consumable side of the equation. Mm. Um, with this closing, I don't know where those readers are going to go. It does feel to me like... There's a certain quality to this specific kind of publishing that really um, it places a lot of weight on each individual piece of this kind of complex ecosystem. Yeah. You know, like I think it's interesting for me to hear you say that, you know, as this one institution closes down, you who are not a part of that institution are being, you know, you're being emailed by, you know, your authors Panicking. Panicking is well, a strong well, you know, word. But, but you yeah. know what I mean. Like, you know, people are interested in what's happening because it's one of those things that has ripple effects across the way each other body in the industry or in this particular portion of the industry behaves, you know. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, it seems like um, if this in particular has, has kind of – if the world has sort of shaped itself around um, bringing readers and, you know, writers and publishers and everyone together – in through this specific means and now that now that's gone that's not a that's not a simple disappearance you know like there's a lot of mechanical work now that has to go into kind of bringing those forces together again so let's go through because there's a lot of prongs to rt as a product and brand yeah let's kind of go through i think what's going to be affected so the big thing is that the rt convention isn't going to happen anymore Mm -hmm. so that means that they're that the biggest reader focused romance convention in the country Mm -hmm. um is is not going to exist man 
Um, so that means that there are fewer promotional opportunities for authors to get in front of readers um, mm-hmm. and do signings. That means um, that there's going to be significantly less less ogling of cover models' chests as they walk around the floor. <laughs> An shirtless. important aspect An important of the aspect. industry. Um, it means that you know there there is one last place for that community to be bolstered for readers to find new in offerings, person. You know, you know yeah, a lot like, of it is there online, but you know we already have seen you know the New York Times cut their romance coverage and kind of all of all of these other areas in publishing when they feel squished they get rid of the one that they think is not helping them and well, that's you often romance. I want to talk about that connection for a second because that's one I find really interesting. Um, And it's not that I think that they're like, I don't know that you can draw a straight line between the New York times um, crossing out its uh, romance lists and, you know, this convention closing, but there's something, there's something thematic there. You know, it's almost like um, it's, it's like you just said, like there's sort of a prevailing attitude Mm -hmm. that, you know, sort of informs these decisions yeah. on the front end, but then also reinforces them after they're made. It's almost like we've cut, you know, we've cut this thing because this one type of publishing isn't necessarily as serious. And then once it's cut, you use its absence to point out that it's not serious. If yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. Like, and, and so you kind of like this kind of stuff, it does, like you say, it has this effect of like sort of this, it creates this vacuum, yeah. right? And RT is a really good example of like, you know, if there's not a spot at the table for us mm-hmm. or if you've kicked us out of the table, we're going to build our own over here. Yeah. Right. Um, so that's. Yeah. And that's the convention. Yeah. Right. You know, yeah. that community is, I think, a huge part of it. But let's. But there's also, you know, the reviews and the magazine. I was gonna and say, it I brings think the, it brings media to that. Yeah. And I think that's even bigger because what that does is it limits a reader or librarian's ability to kind of assess new books that are coming out every month and figure out what they want to read. Mm-hmm. So it makes it harder to reach your user. Um, what else is it doing? It is making it there. It's going to change what publicists and marketers do mm-hmm. because you can't, you know, just send a galley to romantic times and, you know, hope that they'll do a lot of the work for you. I think that, um, you know, with regard to that, it's I'm not sure that people who maybe haven't spent a ton of time in house quite have a sense of how boilerplate some of these publicity conversations can be in certain but in, you know, certain publishing circles. And what I mean by that is like when you have um, when you have a sales conference, which is when, which is like the first moment when like a pub or like a launch, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's kind of when the publicist gets told what the, what books they're about to be working on in a given season. Sure. And what happens there is they get, you know, they get told what these projects are often in times in terms of category and profile, right? Like in terms of metadata and what that means, what their thinking then goes, is they they go back to all the resources they know have worked before. They say, "Hey, this is a romance book of a certain kind of you know, you know bend," and so that means that I can send it to person X, Y, and Z. It means that this magazine will want to look at it. Maybe mm-hmm. we can get, maybe we can do this particular thing because you know we know that uh, readers are interested in that blog. You know, they have like a set, um, you know, pile of conventions that they use to. Um, sell a book sell a book or like prom- or in this case promote a book right and when one of those goes missing it's you got to remember how fickle so much of publishing is like it takes <laughs> a long it takes a long time to create a space in which um, you can reliably say hey this is a great place to reach readers of a very specific kind where we can target the exact people who want this book and we know they're going to also buy it like those places only crop up organically because publishing is entirely based on word of mouth. So it's like you have to um, like you have to find these places and you once you've got them, you just go out you go for them again and again and again and again. Every time you've got these books, like publicists will send um, and obviously there's variation and there's, you know, specificity depending on who the author is and all these sorts of things. But like a lot of the fundamentals stay the same across these books. And mm-hmm. but this what is happening here is a big chunk of that has fallen out of the equation. 
you know, and that is, that's going to leave some people scrambling. It's going to mean one less thing you can do with your author as you kind of try to trot them out on the promotional circuit. And I just, it, um, I think that one thing publishing needs to do a slightly better job of, you know, as this stuff happens is understanding what goes in place, you know, figuring out how to account for these absences in a way other than, I guess we'll just go find something else now, you know? Well, I think, you know, it, what next is a big part of this conversation, right? You know, there is a vacuum that has been created. Everybody's been disrupted. Now what? Um, And so in a lot of ways, you know, you have two choices, right? Choice number one is to completely reimagine the way that things are so that that loss is not going to be as hard. Yeah. Option number two is to have something pop up in its place really quickly. Mm-hmm. So one thing that's already happened a little bit for the convention. So one of at least one of the people who um, helped plan the RT conventions are planning on launching a, like a related convention called okay. the Book Lovers Con, which mm-hmm. will be starting next year. Sure. So that's already like one convention that is attempting to take its place. Of so course, that's good. like how successful that will be will depend because of branding and, and well, I reputation. Bet and I bet it'll take thing. some time, even if they do it well. Right. You know? Um, and so my, but like, it's the, it's really just the, the center, like an, a prestigious place for romance novels to be reviewed mm-hmm. is the big thing yeah. that's missing, right? Because mm-hmm. there's tons of people who are romance book bloggers, mm-hmm. but there's not like RT was like the one that matters, you know? And well, so it'll be interesting to see what pops up in that place. Well, well I think that um, the way you phrase that suggests all kinds of challenges, challenges right. in replacing it, right? Because like those concepts within any sort of circle of, you know, prestige and, you know, the ones that matter, um, you, that's, you have to cultivate that, you know, you don't just become that, you don't just declare that you're, you know, this thing that everyone needs to care about and have it simply be true, you know, like it's something where you kind of gain reader goodwill over time, you gain publisher goodwill over time, and you do these things in such a way that um, people naturally start flocking to you, you build yourself into this larger publishing ecosystem. That elusive and, platform. Yeah. <laughs> And it's, no, it's just tricky. I mean, like anytime you lose a big cog in the way something works. And I mean, obviously I think that romance publishing, you know, there's, there's so much to it that probably it'll be fine and we'll find something else. But like, it just feels like so often, um, in the book world, we're always talking about things disappearing and what to do or Mm -hmm. things consolidating and what to do after that. And, it's it feels like what we never really see or not nearly as frequently is like the adaptation that doesn't try to just fill in the crater where something left and actually make something new, you know? Yeah. And that's that's kind of where I wish that we could we could kind of get as an industry where it's like we weren't just like constantly accounting for loss and trying to refill in gaps of a, you know, something that's kind of broken apart. So, I I had a thought the other day. Um, Mm -hmm. that I was kind of exploring as a thought experiment where, you know, like so much, and we talk about all the time on the show about, you know, what is going, like, why does publishing always try to convince writers or readers that they are not the essential part in this equation? Yeah. Right. Like we talk again and again and again about how like agents aren't important. It's the writers that are important. And, you know, agents, the the business will try to convince you, writer, that you are not the part that matters. Mm -hmm. Right. And that happens with readers, with the publishers, you know, that happens all the way through. And so my thought experiment kind of thinking and reflecting on this RT closing is like, what would happen if our job didn't exist? Like if all the agents in all of the world just like disappeared. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's an interesting question that I think relates here because it gets at the same idea of taking stock of how how you fit into a broader equation. Mm-hmm. And then more importantly, what would happen if you were gone? You know, like we're now answering the question with this RT thing. Like we're now going to see what happens. You know, how does everyone how does the industry kind of fill in the hole? And so it's like if agents went away, like 
um, you know, we pick this thought experiment because, you know, it's us and it's, a, you know, it's sort of a means of understanding what it is we're actually providing. And then from there, you can try to find ways to adapt and make yourself more efficient. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, well, let me ask you first, what what do you think the first shift would be if it once agents went away? Um, I mean, if agents went away and people are still buying books, <laughs> um, yeah. I think, you know, there's either going to be a lot of very predatory contracts gonna, or there's going to yeah. be a lot of like intellectual property lawyers, IP lawyers yeah. that are coming to take our place. Because that's a big part of what we do is we negotiate the contracts and we're kind of the advocate for the writer. So I think, yeah, so lawyers pop up. That's mm-hmm. thing number one because authors are going to start um, – you know, anyone who's savvy is going to want someone to look at their contract because publishers will try to screw you and you should just know that. And so you, you should, you know, get someone to look at it. So we've kind of pointed out, um, you know, sort of the core function of how we're, we exist in relation to authors, right, which is like serving as sort of a representative that kind of helps contextualize, you know, legal stuff and, you know, making sure that you're getting a deal that's fine and all that kind of jazz. And standard. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like making sure that, you know, their interests are being protected in some kind of standard degree. Um, but we also exist in relation to publishers. And that's because we do something that um, that they find critically important in a way that maybe they don't want to actually admit sometimes, which is that we help them find the books. Yeah. You know, um, because it's and I guess may, maybe that's calling me because I've worked in places that are yeah. s- slightly more hostile toward agents. Um, but um, like we separate the wheat from the chaff. Right. Think about what would happen for a second. This is where the biggest change would happen for me is like if agents didn't exist, suddenly all the queries and all the slush are going straight to the publishers. Mm-hmm. Right. Think about how many the, the amount that and they already get a ton. You know what I mean? Like. Public, like randomhouse.com is getting inundated with probably as many queries as you are. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like they're just not reading any of them, yeah. you know, because they have, they can just state that we don't take unsolicited stuff. But like suddenly if they were forced to, that creates all kinds of new problems, right? It creates the need for much more of a staff to go through those queries and actually do the sifting that they were relying on us to do. Um, it's It creates the need for... I mean, probably it recreates the true acquisition editor job. Mm-hmm. You know, the person whose job it is to buy books on just a full-time level because suddenly that task becomes so much more involved um, than, like, waiting for your favorite agents to send you things that are perfectly tailored to what you like. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> now that you have to go find those things yourself. Um, and I mean this, you know, I am sounding like, you know, I'm being, like, aggressive toward the publishers, but but it's just, I think, a means of understanding, like, where these pieces fit together and what would happen if they disappeared. And it's... Um, it's more than just them finding the books, though. Yeah. Because, like, yeah. you, you would need you would need new bodies to, to read the slush, yes. But you would also need, like, you know, there, there would be a big difference between who is doing the acquiring, who is doing the editing, etc. So there might be yeah. more need for development of ideas in-house. You know, one thing that agents do a lot is that we, in a lot of ways, come to the publisher with, you know, a base marketing plan and we come with a platform and how to pitch it. We come there with the copy and the title and all of that stuff. We also come with an edited book. That's and we a, come that, with an edited book. And that has been a shift. Yeah. Because, like, I feel like if you ask any agent, like, what's changed the most over – I mean, there's obviously a million things. We're more online than ever before. We're – doing all these things that, you know, to reach authors because the way authors are talking to each other are changing. But, like, one of the big fundamental changes in the job is how much editing happens between author and agent now. Yeah. You know, and so, like, publishers are getting a pretty relatively clean version of it. Even if they end up making changes themselves, they're getting a much better version of a book than they used to be getting. And that's a lot of labor. And so what that means is that... In a lot of ways, I think that the um, net profit for writers is going to go down because there's going to be a a bigger bottom line. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, like one thing that is really valuable about about agents is that they play on both sides. You know, they're beneficial to both sides. Right. And so there's the idea where, you know, if you have a good relationship with an editor or a house, 
they might offer you a little bit more money for one book that they wouldn't normally do that for mm-hmm. because they want a different book from you as yeah. well, you know? And so it's more of a relationship thing. Whereas I think if you just had somebody doing the contract, it'd be different. And so I think that those very meager profits that writers are already making, I think they would decrease because the money would shift a little bit more. Well, it's just, I'm just thinking about like, you know, publishers suddenly have to pay for all this extra in-house labor. Oh yeah. Guess where they're going to take that money from? Not from, they're going to take that out of authors' pockets. Yeah, oh for sure. (laughs) Like royalty rates would plummet. Um, Advances would plummet. You know, things, I mean, I realize that those are effectively, you know, the same thing in a lot of contexts, but like, you see what I'm saying? Like, authors are going to get paid a lot less under this model. Now, the um, the truth of it is that this is a thought experiment. Agents are not going away. And so maybe my, you know, maybe my question to you is that, like, thinking about how, what sort of core function that reveals about your job. Right. Mm -hmm. Like because that that is the reason I think we do this kind of stuff is like how in what way it answers the question in what ways are we essential? Yeah. You know, in what ways and like we were just kind of talked about in what ways was RT essential? Um, How can we use that particular piece of or that line of questioning, you know, and the information it provides to like better be able to adapt, you know, to like make yourself more indispensable or to like because what always ends up happening is people lose sight of why or, you know, whatever institution is, it loses sight of what its function is and then has to retake stock of things when something goes wrong because they don't quite understand their core identity. Right. I think that a big part of this is not just kind of taking stock for our own personal, you know, lives as agents, but I think it's also important to consider, you know, in what ways are we essential? You know, we just spent a few minutes talking about exactly how we essential, how essential we are. But I think it's also worth noting that during this thought experiment, the thought came that essentially if agents went away, everybody would recreate agents, right? You know, houses would have scouts that would you go would out recreate and pitch the books job to people. In other ways, yeah. You would recreate the job to other ways. But here's the thing. There are a lot of pockets of publishing that don't use agents and mm-hmm. they're doing just fine. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah. partner publishers, like hybrid publishers, et cetera, Lots are doing just fine. Yeah. Lots and and I think the reason for that, the reason for our job being essential is not that it is in and of itself an essential service. Mm-hmm. What is really important is like it has been made essential by the way that publishing is now. Yeah. Right. And so if publishing were to shift as a whole, it might go away or right. it might change or something. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I think the the really the only thing that isn't easily replicable by by labor somewhere else is the the career mentoring that we do with authors. And see, I I think you're totally right. And what's fascinating about coming upon that conclusion is bec- and this is something that I think Lots and lots of institutions, you know, as they kind of self-assess in what is just an ever-changing publishing world, um, you know, finding the thing that uh, that cannot be replaced because we just listed a bunch of stuff that can be replaced somehow. But where you just got, it's like that's the function we should be building around then, right? Right? Like as you kind of think about like what, um, you know, like how are agents? You know, this is something you and I talk about a lot. Like how are agencies going to change in the next twenty years? Like what is an agent? You know. What is an agent's job going to be, you know, moving forward? It's all going to hinge on that, you mm-hmm. know, as it gets harder and harder to publish or as more digital stuff comes up, you know, and new models show up, you know, the job is going to be helping helping authors sift through that stuff, yeah. right? Like figuring out what's best, like being the advocate role. Yeah. Traditional and, publishing is not always the most marketable or the yeah. smartest business decision for authors. Right. But if they have a partner, yeah, you know, you or yeah. exactly. And that's, I think... Yeah, as publishing changes, yeah. that is something that cannot be overlooked. And that is something that people don't necessarily mention a lot when they're looking for an agent or they're trying to find, you know, that first book deal because the idea is that they're just looking at this book deal because why would I look at books down the road? Right. But I think looking at books down the road is really the whole point. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's to have a career in this business. Well, and so so that means that from your and my perspective, our role then becomes how can we change our functions in alliance with that um with that yeah. like core role. Yeah. 
And you know who's actually done, I think, and this is worth calling out because we talked about them before on the show. You know who did a really good job of self-assessing and adjusting like under intense public scrutiny was Pitch Wars. Yes, they, they like, really did. Now, they they ans- they asked themselves a separate set of questions, right? Like they had to, you know, kind of look at things because they realized they hit a point where they had to change something, right? And they looked at it and they said, okay, we've got to make an adjustment. They thought about making one. It wasn't one that the, that the writing community wanted. And so they went back. They assessed again. They came up with some changes. And now everybody is happy. And they're back occupying the well-deserved, you know, well-lauded space that they've, you know, created because they got back to the function yeah. they were really. And it's just like I look at that and I see them. Um, Their first solution wasn't great, but then they... But they retooled and they adapted and they, you know, they worked through in a way that, and I just think that that sort of on your feet thinking that says, hey, what we really need to do right now is sift through the noise and like get at what it is, what what it is we do and how to make that the best. Like, I don't know, like I found, I find that to be impressive. And I think that that's something that, um, you know, just kind of bringing it back to the other things we've talked about, like... Whether it's, um, you know, a press trying to come up with its identity as kind of the book market changes or whether it's, you know, a convention slash magazine that's trying to figure out, you know, how if it it feels so inclined, it's going to remain in the essential space that it's going to within the industry. Like it all comes down to that sort of assessment of like figuring out like what is it that we are offering that cannot be replaced? And I don't know. I mean, I think that it's questions. It's the sort of question that doesn't get asked nearly enough, you know. Yeah, yeah. And also, clearly, we'll just be online way, way more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the answer, the answer to all of this is that I'm going to have to spend more time on social media. Darn. Um, which, is, which is definitely healthy and good and isn't detrimental to my uh, yeah. well-being at all. So yeah. They'll start tweeting uh, you their books instead of <laughs> emailing them. Anyway. Yeah. Um, that said, should we do a write tip? We should. So our write tip this week is one that... I really love, uh, but it's one that Eric came up with, but I'm going to take credit for it anyway, because I'm going to say it. Um, And it is this. Writers, there is always more time. You know, there's this idea in in writing and in publishing that if, you know, you're in your 40s, your 50s, your 60s, etc., that you're never going to make it. There's Mm -hmm. this implicit ageism in being able to write a good book, which is ridiculous because, like, you write about, you know... lives right whether they're yours or somebody else's and the more you live like that's good right the more you live yeah the better theoretically you should be able to make your book right um and so the idea is just stop with all of that you know don't just like decide that you're not going to be a writer because you're just not yet that's that self-defeat is is not going to help there's always more time you know you can look at those memes about how like Oprah was fired from her job at 23 years old, like her first reporting job. And like, that's true. It's totally true. Yeah. No, I mean, and I think like it's even you've actually even understated how toxic some of it can be. Like you see these things where, you know, it's like the 30 under 30 list. Like I feel like people in publishing think 30 can be, you know, too old. And it's just like, no, there's you, you have plenty of time to write your book and don't let anything else tell you otherwise we have this conversation all the time offline where it's you know am i doing enough am i being successful enough for right now and then we realize that we have all the time in the world yeah i would say existential panic is like a key feature of our little meetings yeah for the show (laughs) (laughs) or just like anything yeah on Um, that note yeah on that note you have more time so just do it if you can and don't and and be proud of it Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, our 69th episode. Nice. <laughs> our 69th episode of Print Run. Uh, remember to stay tuned for Query Show this week, and we will see you next Tuesday for another episode. <laughs>